Welcome to the Soundweavers podcast. Soundweavers explores the trials and tribulations of small ensemble musicianship through conversations with leading performers and composers. Today's episode features the Giuliani Ensemble. We hope you enjoy. wonderful gentlefolk welcome back to the sound weavers podcast as always i am your hopping host dr rosanna moore and i am super excited because we have three guests today and three guests in the same room which is always a fun thing for us and we are going to be talking to members of the giuliani ensemble so we are talking to the founder emily seabury graff who is a flute player. We are talking to Julian Graf, who is a violin violist. And we are talking to Anita Graf, who is a cellist with the ensemble. Now, you might have noticed they all have the same surname. And that is because this is very much a family affair. The Giuliani Ensemble has been a chamber group running in the Chicago area for the last over 20 years, which is pretty incredible. And they have provided concerts all over the area and over the country. They teach lessons and they also bring in a number of guest artists, often those who play with the Chicago Symphony Orchestra. So without further ado, I want to say a huge thank you to the Graf family and the Giuliani Ensemble for joining us this morning. How are you guys doing out in Chicago? Hi, Rosie. Very well, thank you. (laughs) Thank you so much for having us on the podcast. Anytime. So let's actually get into some questions. Can you tell us just a little bit about the ensemble and why you founded it? I'm pretty sure this is a question for you, Emily. Okay, well, that's an easy one. Um, Oh, about 25, 26 years ago, I was playing in an ensemble that played in the schools and it was made up of members of the Chicago Symphony. And I had been asked to be in that group. And then around that time, Anita was an infant and the Chicago Cultural Center called me and said, we're trying to start a chamber music program. We were told you were the person to talk to. And I said, really? And they said, yes, we wanna start a chamber music series and would you be interested? And I said, sure. And they said, okay, what's the name of your group? Who's your group? And I was like, so I asked the Chicago Symphony group that I was playing with if they wanted to start playing at the cultural center. And they said, sure. So with that, that was the first group. And I named it after my children, Julie, the first part of Julian's name and Ani, the first part of Anita's name. Oh, I love that. I was going to ask where the name came from. And I love I love name Genesis stories for groups because there's always something interesting. <laughs> <laughs> they were very quick to form this new series and it was called Classical Mondays. 
And some people came and went, but we, we held out and stayed there for the entire 20 year duration, but they wanted a name really quickly. And I, I was like, uh, Giuliani. <laughs> and um, so eventually all my colleagues in the Chicago symphony sort of retired and, and um, were not really in a position to play chamber music. And around that time, these two had gotten older and had become professional musicians. So they actually, even though they started off backstage at the Chicago Cultural Center and at Preston Bradley Hall. And they had the backstage staff all under their fingers. You know, oh, they, that sounds about right. <laughs> they come back and they'd have little drinks and things. Even though that's where they started and Anita's job was to hold Julian back from coming onto the stage as a toddler. He just wanted to follow Emily wherever <laughs> she went. So it was my job to just keep him from going out there. They oh, and that's up- really cute. Oh my God. We were there so long that they ended up playing on the concert series with me, which was really cool. So that was fun. And people in the audience had gotten to know them because once they started school, they said, where are your children? I used to see your son waiting for you. He didn't know anyone could see him. But um, so, yeah, we were there for uh, almost just about 20 years. And now I have turned over the, the running and the management of the Giuliani Ensemble to the heir appearance, uh, heirs apparent, uh, Julian and Anita. So it's their, it's their game now. <laughs> no, I, I love that. And that actually, that leads so nicely into my next question, which is how I, with musicians, we often, we often find uh, colleagues of ours who say, oh, well, my family are musicians. They play with such and such an orchestra or teach at such and such a school, but it's not like a, it's not like a family business often where it's like the children will literally take over the company. I think you are the first group that I've interviewed that there is this lineage um, of the kids taking over what the parents have started. So I just kind of wondered when this became apparent that this was going to become a family affair and you were going to continue running it uh, as, as you sort of graduated and became professional musicians yourselves. It's a little bit of an accident, actually. I mean, both of us, since we you know, became proficient musicians at our instrument, have played with the Giuliani Ensemble on and off. Both Julian and I went to schools out of state for college and for graduate school. So we weren't around that much for about a decade. But whenever we were in town or I'd get a call from mom saying, you know, like, oh, we have a concert on such and such a date. Do you think you can come and play? I'd be like, yeah, I'll, I'll be there. I'm going to be home at that time anyway. Like, so we'd kind of, you know, pop in and out or with things like, I don't know how to run the website. I, you know, <laughs> lend my minimal expertise on that kind of well, thing. Yeah, can I just interject? You realize that once when we started the ensemble, when I started the ensemble in the late nineties, everything was by mail. The internet was a foreign thing that no one understood to the point where I had to make a website in the, the mid two thousands. And I was like, what? So what, how, you know, so it was, it was an ensemble that was actually transitioning with life in the 21st century. And a lot of, a lot of ensembles, honestly, because they were people of my age and older, just kind of said, I, I can't handle this. I'm out. I just move by mail. I don't know how to email people, you know? So we actually had such longevity because uh, these two sort of stepped in and said, Mom, let me show you how that's done. Let's show you how social media works. 
it happened a, a little bit by a little bit because you know like anita helping out with the website and us you know playing concerts we didn't have explicit um intentions to come and you know start running it but when we um were here for the pandemic we started doing these virtual concerts um and we set up a whole stage uh up here in the, in the room and we program and it, it was a monthly thing and we did them uh for a good year i think a little and over a year almost a little, year, like a year and it was, and 19 months. It was a subscription like, series yeah. oh wow we both came into town for like a week or so in march of 2020 and then that, that ended up lasting ages and ages and like the idea to be part of the giuliani ensemble had always been there from from emily kind of always putting in my ear you know like, someday this could be yours i was like yeah <laughs> Okay, mom, like I'll be living in London or Paris by then, sure. But, you know, of course, we both ended up accidentally moving back to Chicago a couple of years ago, and we we're all in the same bubble. So with your like live Giuliani ensemble concerts, not a possibility anymore. It was her bright idea to say like, you know, we still hang out all the time. We should just record concerts and release them to our subscribers and the other people who still want to engage with us. So there's a huge learning curve associated with that because I'm not super tech capable, but I kind of had to be because we were doing all of the production ourselves and all of the distribution, all these things. So we all like learned a lot of skills and it kind of became this little, this trio that ended up working out and it's still something we're happily involved with. Well, yeah, and Anita and Julian's dad spent over 50 years in the Chicago Symphony. So Anita was in the Cincinnati Symphony for three years and he thought that was the path that she should take. And then Julian was taking auditions just as the pandemic hit. And he thought that was the path he should take. And then the pandemic said, no, we have other ideas. You're going to be chamber musicians and you're gonna love it. <laughs> I was gonna say that as Anita started off with her solo career and she started talking to presenters and places to play, part of what she um, would explain of you know what she's doing is that she runs uh, and participates in the Giuliani Ensemble. And a lot of the presenters would be like, oh, that sounds interesting. And, you know, we'd like a group concert. So the ensemble kind of started this touring branch through Anita as well. Oh yeah, I should explain that after being in the Cincinnati Symphony, just as the pandemic hit, she had decided to become a soloist, which was what I'd been urging for a long time, soloist and chamber musician. And that went crazy and she became super busy. And in the meantime, Julian started his own um, concepts of how to be a musician. And both of their concepts ended up, as Julian was saying, using the Giuliani Ensemble as part of that picture. Oh, I think that's amazing. And like, to use the pandemic as an example of this, this is something that I've seen a lot. And it's part of the reason why this, this podcast started in the first place is, don't get me wrong, I love orchestral music. But when the pandemic hit, everything went away it's certainly at the beginning like everything went away you couldn't be in the same room with people we didn't know how this was spreading and chamber musicians really kind of went okay this is our time to shine because we can be in rooms together we can make a little bubble we can learn how to do our own sort of mixing and sharing of our music and stuff like that and I think it's something that 
shone a light actually on music education in general that when you go to college certainly when when I went to college all the way through from my undergrad uh, through to my doctorate you are taught how to teach uh, you are taught your solo music and you're taught excerpts but anyone who wants to be a chamber musician a lot of the times that's sort of pushed to the side as oh this is an elective you can do or sort of it's certainly for my um, it's something that I always really fought for when I was studying but a lot of people I've spoken to, it's been sort of, oh, you want to do chamber music? That's nice. You can do that on your own. But I wonder if uh, because of the pandemic and because of sort of what you're doing with the Giuliani Ensemble, whether that's something that you think will change music education, especially in higher ed, so that um, graduates actually know how to put their own uh, companies together in their own ensembles. Well, I was, I um, recently, I don't know if it was some article I was reading or uh YouTube video or something, but I recently learned about this phenomenon that um, more lateral thinkers have a better chance of uh, succeeding in our new 21st century kind of landscape, as opposed to uh, specialists. Whereas before, you know, specialists would be really good at one thing, and that would be their thing that, that grows them. But in our new world, the people who know how to do more than one thing and can bring other concepts from other facets of technicalities and bring them to a new concept have basically a, a more innovative mindset. And I think that's kind of a lot of what the pandemic has forced on a lot of musicians is that music has been so specialty focused that it's forced a lot of people to, you know, take up podcasts and organize podcasts and organize um, companies and things like that. And I think it's something that's going to stick. I agree with that because when I was in college um, in the seventies, I would tell people, I want to be a chamber musician. I don't really want to play in an orchestra. And I couldn't finish the sentence because of their laughter of like, that's ridiculous. That's the silliest thing I ever heard. And I just kept saying this to people. And I just kept, it was almost like I was a stand-up comic because people couldn't, couldn't stop doubling over with laughter because it was such a ridiculous concept. And then that is exactly what I did with my entire career is I played chamber music from the, the mid to late 80s and I'm still doing it. And I somehow think that if you just decide you want to do it, you have to get a little crafty, as Julie was saying, as to how am I going to make this work? It's fine to know what you want to do, but then you've got to figure out how you're going to do it. And that's where not having other skills, you know, having uh, some business acumen or some knowing someone with business acumen or technological acumen, it comes into play and, and you, you're going to have to bring something else into Entre it. Entrepreneurial is the, the word. I yes. Was Entrepreneurial uh, capabilities. You're going to have to, to either have that yourself or seek out someone to help you with that. But I think it's completely, I think it's very doable. And I raised them with the concept that, if you can play chamber music, you can be a soloist and an orchestral musician. It doesn't work the other way around necessarily. Oh no, I, it absolutely doesn't. And I, I think that's really refreshing to actually hear people say that. 
Chamber music is the crown jewel of being a professional musician, in my opinion, because it opens the door for you to do anything else that you want. Yeah, I, I sincerely hope that, you know, this is a kind of change in direction we see in music education and higher education and all these things for pre-professionals. Because I was in school not that long ago, but even then, I think the idea was still kind of like, oh, you have a problem, whatever it is, practice more. That's not always the solution to everything. Like Julian's saying, there's business skills, there's self-advocacy, there's being able to research, all these other abilities that you need to have. And I think that you can really get all of those skills um, learned from, you know, engaging in chamber music. Especially like these days, we're hearing the term, you know, portfolio career bandied about a lot in terms of like your ability to have your own back, essentially, to be able to speak about your work and engage with others and program things in a way that's relevant to audiences today. All these all these concepts, I think, really have been shown to be crucial in the past few years of like you do, as you say, you have to be crafty and resourceful and Chamber music teaches you all of those things. I was actually just a short start. I was writing on a Metro North a couple months ago going back into New York City. And I ran into like a fairly famous cellist randomly. He just saw my case and we got to chatting and it was all kinds of funny and strange. But I he was I found out that he was one of Katagorski's last students. And so oh, I was wow. asking about Katagorski's advice, like what was what was something you really took with you from your time with him? And he said, Well, I asked him, you know, like what what's the best thing I can do to learn how to become a fantastic musician? And he said, the most important thing that you can do with yourself is to play as much chamber music as possible. And so I was like, oh, that really resonates with me because I've really found that to be the case in every way. I would say for so long in our industry, the thinking has kind of been, you know, if you just practice, you practice enough, there will be this sort of career river that you can just sail down on, whether that's like an orchestra or competitions or a solo career or something like that. And now we're having to dig our own streams or our own rivers to take us where we want to go. Absolutely. And all of talking about this, uh, I love that you mentioned portfolio career, because this is a um, this is a phrase that I was always brought up with in the UK because we have fewer orchestras there. We're a smaller country, but with a lot of musicians, most Uh, most of us are taught to aspire to this portfolio career of doing a little bit of this and a little bit of that. But when I came and I mentioned this, when I first moved to the States, I honestly got so many blank looks of what's that? Does that mean you just didn't win an orchestral job? And I was like, I did, what? So I love that that is starting to take hold uh, as um, as a term in the US. But also I, it's reminded me of one of my favorite phrases, which everyone always only um, quotes the beginning of it, which is a jack of all trades, um, jack of all trades, but master of none, which everyone thinks is a horrible, horrible insult. But the end of that is, but oftentimes better than master of one, which is kind of actually most people don't realize there's a second part of this phrase and it's true like yes it is wonderful to be specialized in something but it also puts you into a box and it's why i think a lot of our colleagues struggled especially at the beginning of the pandemic because they went oh gosh what do we do our main source of income has been taken away and the but also it's also the fact that we're creative and we were all able to adapt regardless of where our careers have taken us that is really kind of a testament to a art moving forward but also going no, you're specialized, but you can do other things, I promise. So just reminded me of that quote. Well, I think another really good um, 
result of the pandemic is people realized how much they needed and were connected. The human is so connected to music. Yes. And it was all taken away. You know, before the pandemic, I think a lot of people assumed that, you know, going to a concert or teaching, having your children take lessons was, was almost a frivolity. It was, you know, something that was not really a legitimate uh, profession. And, you know, it, I don't know about strings, but a lot of the winds, you were talking about music education. Um, a lot of the wind players now are double majoring in their instrument and another subject because I think they feel that it's not a viable option to become a, a full-time musician. And then they usually just do the, the other subject. But I think what the pandemic did for a lot of concert goers is said, oh, I really need this in my life. I miss this. I really, this is not uh, just a, a frivolity. This is an actual necessity. And I think I'm glad people are realizing that because, you know, the human had music before they had spoken language. So it is extremely tied to the human spirit and the human psyche and the human um, mental state. Mm -hmm. And so being a small chamber ensemble, we were able to be very malleable. And, and like Julian was saying with the concert series, we were able to adapt to people need this, but they can't go out and get it. And I think that was really helpful in the pandemic that being a small chamber group, we could adapt, we could provide a need for society. And at the same time, now that we're live again, people are also just saying, I also need this live. This is incredible. And so I think for the classical music world, it may end up being a good thing because it's it's no longer seen as a luxury, but actually a, a requirement of healthy living. Yeah. Absolutely. And I, I think that's something that's so, so important that has been brought to light. Um, it's, again, out of the tragedy of a worldwide pandemic, if we get some good things out of it, that's a, that's a plus. Exactly what people have been saying to us at concerts, that, oh my gosh, this is my first time hearing a live concert, and I just, I had no idea how much I needed this. <laughs>
of your virtual concerts, which actually the production value on them was really quite fantastic. Is that something that you are going to continue to offer? Because I love that this was a subscription model as well. It's almost like Netflix for um, Netflix for chamber music. Well, that's where Emily has some genius forward thinking ideas, because I think it was April of 2020 that you're like, you know what, we should start a video series. I'm like, what? With what? How? Well, my thinking was people have a television or a computer. We can get ourselves into it. (laughs) Which it was it was great just from like a a well-being standpoint, as you're saying, just to have, you know, a reason to get the instrument out or a deadline even that you had to meet, even though sometimes I was like up at three o'clock in the morning trying to edit videos and like crying to myself. But so it ended up being so much fun. And we learned a lot because honestly, you have to get pretty creative with a flute trio to program 19 months of concerts. So we like ended up making some arrangements of pieces that we're still performing on tour today. And there were a lot of positives that came out of it. Eventually, once we started kind of going back on the road again and we run a series um, you know, live again here in Chicago <laughs> and Julian is the, the head honcho of our chamber music festival, it became a little bit more unrealistic to be like, okay, we have this time to rehearse and record and patch and do all these things. But I, we did talk about it and we've left the archive of concerts available for people. And especially, I think there's like maybe a, a one-time payment. It's like, oh, you get a library of everything that we recorded. So that's, oh, that's amazing. Yeah. available. And I've heard from some people who are like, oh yeah, I go back through this and I, I put it on one cooking dinner or whatever it is. And we could conceivably add to it as well, you know, so. Yeah, as our series in, in downtown Chicago gets going, um, we plan to, record those and put those on our website as well. So Anita has become uh, a very fabulous soloist who is booked solid and until 2025 played with three orchestras. It's just, it's a dream. It's a dream what's happened with Anita and her career. And then Julian, I think you should tell her what you've done in terms, and all of this is offshoots of the Giuliani Ensemble. So our, our current Giuliani Ensemble Chicago-based series um, is takes place at this gallery in the West Loop of Chicago called Primitive. And it's this gallery that deals in antiquities and art and just about you know everything that's pretty cool. And everything in there is about uh, museum quality and it could easily be in the Met or the Art Institute. Um, and so what we're doing now are these concerts that mix art exhibitions and concerts, and they're connected through a theme where we talk about uh, the concepts that contributed to the creation of the various art or artifacts and the concepts that contributed, the same concepts that contributed to the creation of the music that we perform in, uh, in that concert. So it's exciting because it's a little different. It's a little bit more multifaceted. Um, and we just did our first concert of that back earlier in this December. Our second concert is coming up uh, January 28th. And it, that is also a monthly concert series as well. It's very exciting. And it's been so far the first one was the audience was very excited as well. That's amazing. So technically, I sort of looking at your website, you are sort of a 
Lexi group, you travel all over the place and you sort of go from being a soloist up to a larger chamber ensemble. So I just wondered sort of a little bit about the technicalities of that. So firstly, how do you choose who else to play with? So you have the core members of U3 and you have another couple of members listed as core members on your site, but I know you also bring in uh, members from the Chicago Symphony, often as your guests. Uh, and how how do you pick who to bring in? How do you pick repertoire? All of all of those technical details. Well, I can I can definitely talk about the art artists side of it since that's usually primarily my job is to to reach out to guest artists. Um, and so the fun thing about chamber music is that unlike any other kind of job, you can just hang out with your friends all the time, and it helps when your friends are insanely musically talented, as many of ours are. And so that's been kind of the joy of being one of the co-directors of the ensembles, being able to say like, "Hey, pal, what are you doing on this day? I like, I'd love to make some music with you, and like, actually bring people into town and introduce them to new audiences." Um, so you know, there's. There's people from all over. There's my friends like you that I know from festivals. There's friends that I went to school with or that I used to work with or I met somewhere on the road. So that always comes down to, you know, you know, people are busy and thankfully everybody we use is very in demand. So it comes down to, you know, scheduling and repertoire and, you know, how many, what, what are the demands of the space or the audience? What is, what are this particular audience looking for? That kind of thing. Um, but I'm, I'm very lucky that there's a lot of passionate musicians out there who want to play chamber music. And I feel really, really grateful that I'm able to provide that outlet for people that I love making music with. That's amazing. And how do you actually book your gigs? So I know you you obviously perform in Chicago. And am I right that you have two other hubs in Illinois that you perform in throughout the year? Well, we have our new Chicago gigs here. And then we have our Tallgrass Chamber Music Festival in Galena, Wisconsin, that's our, Illinois. Illinois, sorry, Galena, Illinois, and that takes place at the Goldmore Inn. It's our winter festival, and we're adding a summer version of that just over the border of Illinois in Wisconsin. Yeah, at a, a long time ago, they um, purchased a... We bought the farm, but we're still alive. <laughs> they... they um, <laughs> I've been wanting to say that. You've been sitting there waiting. <laughs> we bought the farm. <laughs> okay. We, we bought a farm. Yeah. 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 Well, or, yeah, they did. Um, and some land in Wisconsin, because before they had the Giuliani Ensemble, they created the Galena Chamber Ensemble, which was in uh, Galena, Illinois. And uh, they had a house there in Galena, and they moved from there more into a more rural setting. Uh, in Wisconsin. And this was pre-children and it was it was me and Richard, their dad, and all our colleagues from the Chicago Symphony. We would all go out to Galena, which is the whole town's on the historic register. It's oh wow place. It is where Ulysses Grant is from and Abraham Lincoln spent time there. And it's all a historic town. And we started a chamber music series there in the late 80s. And it was great because people from the Chicago Symphony would come out and play a concert and they'd get a free weekend in a beautiful uh, bed and breakfast of some super old, gorgeous home. And it's just a great, it's the second largest tourist area of Illinois, but it's a tiny town. So it was just a charming weekend for everybody. And we did that until all of us that were playing these concerts started having kids 
And once that happened, we kind of, after about 10 years, we said, uh, this is maybe too much, the concerts and the babies. There were about eight babies born at the same time. Oh, Lord. <laughs> yeah. So we, we, we took a break from that, but Galena wouldn't let us go. And so that's why we're still doing concerts in Galena, but in a different format, which they now run. Yeah, and then also during the pandemic, uh, the, the farm property, who, which had previously been used as a farm, and the tenants there had recently left, um, we were at a bit of a crossroads about what to do with it. And at the same time, here in Chicago, we had just uh, moved away from a previous venue that we, were, we thought would work out and we were really excited about. And we were a little frustrated with that. And I just kind of thought, well, you know what? We should just make our own venue. So the farm that has this large barn, uh, we've converted into a concert hall. And so that's the uh, area where we're going to be. Saying we is very generous. I was just going to say you converted because you did all the work literally with your hands. And I just stood there going, oh, my gosh, your hands, be careful. Yeah, Jillian spent the better part of a year with a small carpentry team, like busting through walls like the Kool-Aid man yeah. all by himself. Wow. <laughs> Using saws and nail guns and wood falling on his head yeah. and all it was it was a huge renovation subsequently turning what was and is an 1840s hay barn into a functioning concert hall with lighting and electricity and chandeliers and it's just it's really gorgeous so i i want to go play that can i come play I some rock chamber music that sounds amazing now we we all i i started chipping in in the in the summer and pulled the shoulder yeah i i didn't do much but he did most of it and transformed this entire farm property from uh-oh to oh my goodness and at, we did a preview concert in september just a dry run and Every single person that walked into the barn went, oh, oh my goodness. Every single one just couldn't believe that. Plus, how it's beautiful. A, it's a shoebox shaped, entirely wooden structure. So the sound is really the good. The sound is fantastic. Yes. Oh, that's good. <laughs> yeah. So this, this coming June, June 2023 is going to be like the first iteration of the festival. So we have two weeks of, you know, festival music happening with like four different programs and it should be really fun we're starting off with like mostly string chamber music yeah it's eventually supposed to be an entire summer long multidisciplinary arts festival of literary and, and film and visual arts and music um but we're starting with what we know how to do <laughs> i i cannot wait to see how that develops that's that's going to be incredible. I especially make it interdisciplinary. I think that's so important and it's definitely um, <laughs> filling a hole that we don't really have on the market. So that's definitely an amazing thing. Allgrassfestival.org if anybody wants to go see what's happening. And yeah, there are, there are photos of before and after photos of wow. all the construction. Please say there are photos of you being like the Kool-Aid man and busting through walls. That <laughs> yeah. is what... There's <laughs> a photo of me with like paint all over my face and my my body. It's I'm unrecognizable. And so and some animal hay stuff going on there. He's got like a Superman Clark Kent lifestyle we, going on. We actually it was just in time because when we were renovating it, we found some serious issues that through neglect 
if we had wait, if nothing had happened to it much longer, it would have started to fall down because they're oh, wow. okay. yeah, the fix. Yeah. Yeah. It's it, 1840s. It was built without any nails um, because they didn't have nails. <laughs> okay. It's all wintering. And um, it's beautiful. It's really nice. I cannot wait to see pictures. I, I need to find an excuse to come out and see it as well. That sounds amazing. Oh, we'll figure it out. When Julian says you have to be entrepreneurial, he's not joking. <laughs> so many times I would see him like doing something electrical and saying, what are you doing? You don't know how to do that. And he'd say, I do now. And then he said, I've got to jumpstart this truck. And I said, you don't know how to do that. And he's like, I do now. <laughs> I was just always like, what? He, he knows how to do everything involving YouTube is, is <laughs> YouTube is a great thing for some of this stuff. <laughs> the disciplinary love is because Julian's also a painter and he had an he has an accidental degree from Eastman in art history as well. From as, University of Rochester. Yeah, University of Rochester uh. in art history, but just because he was interested in it, not because he was trying to get it. But he's he's always been extremely artistic and um, he's my little artist and he's also a painter. So that's also everything that he loves is sort of coming full circle into one fantastic property. That's just, it's in the driftless region of Wisconsin and Illinois and uh, Iowa where it was never glaciated. So it's extremely hilly. It's Southwestern Wisconsin. So it's like five minutes from the Mississippi River. question how do you fund your existence oh my gosh always a great question always a question that's in progress because I feel like the landscape keeps changing a lot well part of part of all of this that probably explains some of it is that we're also a 501c3 not-for-profit so that helps a lot in terms of being like an ensemble but also an institution we spend a lot of time writing grants. Yeah, I've been writing grants since we were the Galena Chamber Ensemble in the late 80s. And I'm still pretty much the head grant writer. And we get contributions. People like what they hear. They like their experience and then they contribute. So we have a lot of personal contributions. We have ticket sales. And then um, I do a lot of grant writing and connecting with foundations and, and things like that. And when it comes to, talk, to the tall grass renovation, it cuts down on costs a whole lot if you do it yourself. <laughs> I mean, that's true. <laughs> Carpenter by day, violist by yeah. night. Some, some bartering, some, you know, like, I'll give you this if you give me that. And um, salvaging. I, a lot of the stuff that we did is, is salvaged from um, other... Like warehouses. Places. Like all of the chandeliers in the, in the barn are, are salvaged and 
the the door doors for various uh, structures are all salvaged. But she's kind of our, our grant expert. Whenever we find something that looks like it would be a good fit, and you know, one of us just has our head in our hands because we're like, well, there's there's 18 million hoops to jump through and all this stuff. Um, so it's really nice to be able to have a resource to be like, oh, okay, yeah, like I've seen this one before. This is what you do. This is this. Yeah, I do all the grant writing, the tax filings the accountant stuff. So I've always been doing that since the since back in the 80s. So it's what I do. It's my contribution to letting them hand over the artistic reins. As, as far as running things, I would say individual responsibilities kind of come down to like, okay, what do you hate doing the least? <laughs> you do that. You do that. I think one of the, the first years that we were here for the pandemic, um, I was writing uh, I think a, a grant for the state of Illinois and they were like I think Julian's lost his mind a little bit <laughs> I was just like stuck in a basement <laughs> looking at a computer we had to rescue him yeah so like, we, we figured I don't it out. think you're doing okay yeah. he's like this is driving me crazy and I was like let me do it I'll yeah. take over that's good. I, I think that's kind of the thing with chamber groups is going find the stuff that you hate the least and that there's always somewhere that you can slot slot people into, which is really great. William bartered with a carpenter friend of ours that he could have hunting rights on our property in exchange ah. for tens of thousands of dollars of carpentry and, and a, a local farmer who can do everything and anything and helped us immensely. We played at his daughter's wedding 10 years ago. And for that, he's forever indebted. And he's so kind and generous and helps us with things. So, you know, in, in the country, there are very smart people out there that know how to do a lot of different things. And so we've we've relied on them a lot to to get us through because there are things city people know but there are things rural people know and they don't always cross over but they both know a lot this just reminded me of something i just remembered i wanted to say about what you can learn from chamber music um because i think in terms of like shifting mores and attitudes i think for most of history we've kind of been taught that classical music is a survival of the fittest industry but i learned about this phrase that i loved in an anthropology book i was reading um, a little bit ago it was called humankind and its whole emphasis was on how humanity has survived through collaboration and how we're more wired for that you know even in our ability to develop language just things like that and so this author's kind of thesis was that perhaps if you look at it through a different lens humanity is like the dominant species on earth because survival of the friendliest is more applicable. And I think in some ways that's kind of a shifting attitude that we can see applied to classical music as an industry, but particularly in chamber music, because you're just not going to work very much if you're not a good colleague and respectful and responsible and all these things. And so I think some a value that you can really, you know, come embedded in your soul from playing chamber music is how can I reach out? How can I help support other people's dreams? How can I be a good colleague or a good friend or whatever it is? And so in running the Giuliani Ensemble and everything I do, I kind of think of the idea of survival of the friendliest instead. I also think we, we realize we don't know everything because having had a house in very rural Wisconsin uh, for their entire life and having a house in very uh, urban Chicago, we would go to rural Wisconsin and in many ways be lost. And one of our neighbors would always help us and show us 
oh no, this is what you need to do. Otherwise that'll happen. And because we've been able to be the city mouse and the country mouse, we've learned to combine our skill set and realize we don't know everything and it's okay to ask. Just, you know, a lot of people from one area think they know everything that there is. If you don't cross over areas, you don't realize, oh, I have a lot to learn. So that whole attitude of we have a lot to learn, I think has helped us immensely as well. I think that's such an important thing to say. And I completely agree. It is survival of the friendliest. Gone are the days where you can just be like, I mean, we think of the the maestro who is just a little bit of an asshole. You don't get away with that nowadays because it doesn't uh, it doesn't produce the best results. Like being a friendly person, a good colleague and a kind person is always going to go further than not than just being a taskmaster for the sake of being a taskmaster. It doesn't mean that you don't work hard. It just means that you need to think about the way that you're portraying this to people so that it's hugely important. Right. A hundred percent. But on top of just, you know, it's good to be a good person. If I really think about it and, you know, play things out, do I really want to live in a musical landscape where I get to have a voice that I've managed to like crush everyone else around me? Like, absolutely not. It's a more rewarding experience for everyone. If you can figure out how can I support somebody's dreams? Like, how can I reach out? How can I be of service? And not necessarily in a transactional way, but I think through a spirit of collaboration, we can just build up a healthier landscape in general. When they went off to college, I told them both, everyone you meet may become a friend, but they're all colleagues. And just approach freshman year, day one, I am now in school with all of my colleagues for the future. Yes, I honest, I wish that more people told their kids that, told their students that, because it, it's something I always said, especially when I became a teaching assistant as a grad student, it's like those people that you, that whether you like them or not, they're going to end up on panels for jobs. They're going to end up being your colleagues. They're going to end up reading your grant proposals. We were just saying there's 14 people in the whole industry. <laughs> it does kind of feel that way where you're like 50 years later, you're still seeing the same people. Talking about uh, sort of this idea of collaboration and the sort of being kind within the industry, um, I wanted to talk about passing that on. So you also sort of have a music school running from what I can see on your website. And um, so a lot of ensembles and individuals that we interview, they obviously give lessons. Most musicians teach to some extent, but they are often affiliated with a group outside of themselves, whereas you offer it through the Giuliani Ensemble. Could you just talk a little bit about why you decided to combine these and sort of uh, what the package entails when when you offer your teaching on your website? Well, when we give concerts and either tour and give concerts and travel and stuff like that, um, we often find people who are interested and used to play instruments or want to start their kid playing instruments, something like that. And we want to give them a, a sort of one-stop shop where they can find concerts and participate and uh, learn themselves. So we folded that into, into what we do. And we kind of bring our ethos of friendliness and openness to that. Because if you're teaching somebody and you put them on edge or you, you make them worry about how they're doing or how they're advancing, you, they're not going to listen to you as well. They're not going to take in what you're saying or incorporate what you're saying as well anymore. And 
having a friendly atmosphere is just better for improvement and growth. It's also, we've kind of realized we have, you know, obviously three different voices. And even when it comes to teaching three different styles, and we do often, you know, when we're on the road, we give master classes a lot, or we do, I, I always try to make sure that we fold in um, outreach or educational activities to what we do. So we end up doing a lot of school visits, things like that. And so we kind of realized, as we've been mentioning this whole time, we all have three different points of view and strengths. And so, you know, when, when people come to study with somebody in the Giuliani Ensemble, they do have their individual teacher, but it's quite easy for Emily to say like, oh, I had a lesson with this, this child or this person today, and I really think they would re resonate more with Julian, how, how, you, how you speak to students and what you do. Or at the same time, I can have one of my shallow students you know, set up a time where I have Emily come and play piano with them because they need to learn how to have, play with accompaniment, things like that, or just having a group studio recitals even is really helpful, I think, for small musicians, older musicians, beginner, any level to just be able to like meet the other people, see what's happening, to support each other and to like get used to performing, basically. Yeah, I've, said, I've given Julian some students that were going to study with me because you know, especially little boys, I think need male role models and just, he has a different way of teaching that sometimes speaks to a person better than I do. And sometimes I do better than, you know, so it's very much an organizational, we discuss the students and maybe what their needs are. And if we're having trouble getting some point across, we'll, we'll talk to each other as to you know, this one is having trouble with rhythm. You have any ways of, you know, everybody has a little bit of something to contribute. But the teaching aspect is extremely important to me as the founder, because years ago, before I had children, when I was in that group with Chicago Symphony, I played a concert. And uh, at the end of the concert, a, a, a child came up and said to me, who told you you could play the flute? Who told, who told you you could do this? And I thought, oh, no, we need to have much more connection to young people so that they don't feel they need permission to play an instrument, but that they understand that it's something that should be part of them. So I always want to give the, you know, pull up people up the ladder and make sure that we're giving a hand back because this has to continue. And music is, is only black dots on a page. And if somebody's not continually playing it, it's, it's not like a painting in an art, uh, art museum. You don't get to see it or hear it. You have to have people connected to it and playing it. And so much of the music attitude for so long has been like, here, I'm on this stage. There's this wall, you're down there, you're the audience. I'm gonna play and you're gonna listen. And we're going in this direction of more interactivity and being like, you can, do this too you can participate you can um you know you don't have to just listen you can create and and explore yourself definitely letting young people know this is not out of your reach as a matter of fact it should be in within your reach because you can continue this art form that's amazing and that that's just a beautiful sentiment with that we always finish our episodes with question roulette so could you pick a uh, question one, two, or three? Two. Okay, that's two for two. Two for two. All right. Uh, where do you see your ensemble going in the next 10 years? Ooh, 
Good question. We will have children and train them to take <laughs> the third generation of the Giuliani Ensemble. Um, I, I would say that Tallgrass is our big project for the future because that's where, I mean, that's going to require building structures and we're looking at building um, small cabins or I guess they're called like tiny homes or things like that for housing musicians who come and play and, and housing um, audience members. And we're, we're also planning on opening an outdoor opera wing to that as well. Julian's oh, built wow. a Google campus, <laughs> essentially. So while we're- And doing, housing. Yeah, yeah, oh yes, and, and housing. And so while we're doing all of our various touring, uh, I think we're all expecting that to be our, our big, you know, like project. Yeah, and it's cool because where, where this, the Tallgrass Festival is, it's 30 minutes from Taliesin, um, Frank Lloyd Wright's summer home. It's about 30 minutes from the American Players Theater Shakespeare Summer Festival. It's an hour from Madison, 30 minutes from Dubuque, 30 minutes from Galena. So you get to be oh, away from the world and see the stars, but not away from the world. If I was, and this is rushing a lot, relax, so I don't want to talk too much, but us having grown up half in the country and half in the city, in the time that we grew up in like the dawn of the 21st century, we've seen the explosion um, in life differences in the city versus the country. And a lot of that has to do with the arts of, you know, you have just with globalization, you have so much more access to different cultures and different foods and different experiences. Um, and that is kind of part of the reason why we created Tallgrass is because we're bringing all of that diversity of voices and experiences and just fun and bringing it to the country and out of the cities. So we're looking at all, all facets of you know, food and, and art. So kind of like an idea of how, how can a landscape be transformed by right. access to arts and culture. Right, exactly. Can I tell a funny story? Absolutely. Well, when they were doing the preview concert in late September, first of all, um, our, they have horses there and the horses got out and Julian was physically chasing horses down the road and I was trying to block them with the car. They ended up taking themselves back. I told them it was Ferris Bueller's day off horse style. They, they ran back to where they wanted to go. And we called that the local farmer that can do everything. He was able to get those horses in a matter of seconds. Of course. And he looked at us and said, we don't chase horses. That's one of the things. There's a city versus country. We, we, we would have never caught those horses. But we said he was the James Bond of horse wrangling. <laughs> but And then the second funny story of during that same period of time is the... Um, chair rental place brought the wrong chairs. And so Julian's standing out there, you know, so calm and collected and in charge, just calls him, says, you, you brought the wrong chairs, you gotta bring the right chairs. And I'm just like, no, this is such a disaster. He handled it. So the guy brings the right chairs and I'm helping unload them while at the same time, they're rehearsing a Brahms string quartet, which you can hear coming through the barn. 
and at simultaneously a different neighbor drives up in their big truck and they're all in uh, camouflage. Farmer, 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 farmer different farmer neighbor. And they say, have you seen our heifers? We've lost our heifers. And I'm like, no. And they said, well, if you see them, let us know. And in the meantime, they know the, the chair guy who is also a beef farmer. And they're like, hey, how are you? So this conversation's going on with still the Brahms coming through. And then everybody says, that is beautiful. This place looks amazing. I love it. We're going to come back for the concert because this is incredible. In the meantime, I told them, I think the, your cows, there's some other cows down the road. Maybe that's where they went. They came back. They said, you were right. You city slicker. You knew what, <laughs> where the cows went without even knowing anything about cows. So I was right. I was like, really? The city girl knew where the cows went? They found the cows and they came back and they said, this is magnificent. We're so happy you're doing this. We're coming back for the concert tomorrow. And you know, that's, that's really like a, a microcosm. I hope I told that quickly enough, but. No, it was fabulous. I love it. And that, story that folks is how you get heifers, new audiences. <laughs> the lost heifers, the camo, the Brahms, <laughs> the, the, the wrong chairs, the new chairs. It was, it was quite an, and I thought, this is why we're doing this. Because people looking for heifers also love Brahms. With that, that is such a beautiful note to end the podcast on. So once again, uh, I am joined by three members of the Graf family who are the Giuliani Ensemble, who have just been such incredible guests today. Thank you all so much for joining me this morning. All of their info is going to be down in the show notes, as always, and we look forward to seeing you in a couple of weeks. Thanks so Thank much. You. Thank you. Thank you, Thanks for having us. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Sound Weavers podcast. If you enjoyed our show, please subscribe to us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, and most other major podcast platforms. We hope that you'll visit us at www.soundweaverscast.com. Follow us on Facebook and Instagram at Soundweaverscast, and on Twitter at SWChamberCast, where you'll get episodes as soon as they drop, show notes, and regular updates. This podcast is produced by Nicholas Yelenowskis and engineered by Evan Henry. As always, I'm your host, Rosanna Moore. Our theme music was composed by Evan Henry and recorded by the Soundweavers founders. The music you heard in today's podcast was composed by François Divien and Carl Stamitz and was performed by the Giuliani Ensemble. On behalf of the Soundweavers cast, we'll see you next episode.